So this morning, we have really two themes colliding. Obviously, it's Christmas, so we're looking at the birth of Jesus, and we've just had dedications this morning. So it seems fitting to look at the dedication of Jesus. And actually, fittingly, we're starting where we left off last week um, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 22. And we will read to verse 38. Now, actually, similarly to the dedication that we've just witnessed, uh, really, this is Um, As much as the dedication of Jesus to the temple, it's also a moment of thanksgiving. Uh, Mary and Joseph are bringing Jesus to the temple uh, to make a sacrifice to give thanks for their firstborn son, Jesus. And um, at this ceremony, there are two particular people um, who Luke, the writer of Luke's gospel, uh, wants to draw draw our attention to, Simeon and Anna. What's really interesting is that, uh, as, we, as, re- as we'll see in a moment as we read it, is he wants to stress uh, their spiritual credentials to us. He emphasizes that Simeon is a man who's been filled with the Spirit. And he emphasizes that Anna is a woman who is dedicated to prayer and worship. And she's in the temple day and night praying and fasting. I think the reason why Luke wants to, to emphasize these guys' spiritual credentials to us really is because he wants us to pay close attention to what they have to say about Jesus, to pay close attention to their reaction to this baby who's being dedicated before them. So I'm going to read now uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 22. Uh, That's page 1508, by the way. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb should be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshipping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel, of Jerusalem. Sorry. Uh, let's pray. And you can definitely let the guys in who are waiting outside. Oh, okay. 
Yeah, Lord Jesus, we just thank you for the good news of your son, Jesus. We thank you for this salvation that you've spoken about in your passage, in this passage. I pray that this morning you would reveal to us more of what it means to experience your salvation. I pray that you would speak through and you would illuminate what Simeon and Anna have to say about Jesus this morning. Amen. Amen. So the first thing, the main thing that I think you can draw from what Simeon has to say about Jesus is this is no ordinary dedication ceremony. As he holds the baby in his arms, his words are striking. My eyes have seen your salvation. Now, these are not normally the words you'd expect to be uh, used to describe a baby at a dedication ceremony. Uh, The parents who have dedicated their uh, babies before us this morning, uh, they would say they're probably all in love with their their new uh, babies, their their children. Uh, They probably say they're going to change their lives if they haven't already. But it's very unlikely that they would describe these wonderful children as their salvation, as as the saviour as as their baby, as their saviour. Actually, it's even surprising to Mary and Joseph. Uh, Can you see in verse 33, it said, Mary and Joseph marveled at what was said about him. So what Simeon's saying really is quite significant. What does he mean by this? Well, this is a man who's been waiting for the Messiah of Israel. In verse 26, it said, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, Christ simply means Messiah. It's not a surname of Jesus, but it's talking about this expectation that the Jewish people have that there would be a saviour, one who would come and save them. So this man, Simeon, is waiting for that saviour. But actually, this saviour is not just for the Jewish people. You can see in verse 32 that this saviour is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Gentiles means uh, all other people who aren't Jewish. So essentially, he's saying... he's um, He's waiting for the saviour of the Jews and the Gentiles. When Simeon describes Jesus as um, God's salvation, when he says, my eyes have seen your salvation, what he's saying is, this is the saviour of the world. Now, these terms, salvation and saviour, they aren't ones that we normally use. And actually, there's a danger that you would think, really, they're of very little relevance to modern Londoners. But actually, I'd say it's the precise opposite. Actually, This concept of a saviour, a solution to the problems that we see in the world, actually speaks right to the desires of our hearts. Actually, we're longing for salvation more than we realise. Let me explain. We live in a time and a generation with a profound level of pessimism about the world, about human nature and even the future of humanity. Many of us are saying, either consciously or subconsciously, that things need to change. We may not put it in the language that that, uh, Simeon is using in terms of a language of a saviour, but we are asking, what will change the situation? We are effectively saying, what will save us? When we survey the landscape of global affairs, we see a constant stream of new conflicts, of lives being lost, and feel like the the world is always teetering on the edge of global disaster. Closer to home, as we observe uh, British society, we hear constant accusations around Christmas time, at least, that um, a time which is meant to be about peace and goodwill to all men is actually full of consumerism, of selfishness, of overconsumption, persistent inequality. 
Actually, even in our own lives, we see broken relationships. We see families not talking to one another. We see colleagues competing with one another, climbing over one another to get to the top of the food chain. And actually, we just see Londoners perfecting the art of ignoring each other as they go about their daily lives. And as we see these things, we get a sense that something is wrong, that things are not the way they should be, that this is not the way things are meant to be. And actually, over the 20th, I would argue, over the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century, this uh, what was a kind of previous secular humanist hope that. Actually, humankind was genuinely, generally decent, and that the world was getting better. That hope has died. Actually, we live in a time of profound pessimism, as we've、um, witnessed persistent conflicts, as we've witnessed our leaders、uh, let us down with different scandals, from expenses scandals to abuse scandals, as we see persistent inequality and perhaps selfishness in our culture. Actually, we we seem to really be at a point, a low ebb, when it comes to our expectations for humanity. Actually, you know, there are people who are kind of spending their time making predictions about when humankind will be extinct, because they're saying we we are on a trend of destroying ourselves, and it's, and they're just kind of debating when that point of extinction will be. Actually, in response to this, there are many who are grasping to find a solution to what will rescue humanity. Actually, this generation, as well as being very aware of the brokenness, I would say it's also a campaigning and protesting generation.、Uh, it might be slacktivism, it might be campaigning and protesting from their Facebook page, but there's still a deep desire and kind of、uh, grasping, a kind of ruminating almost of saying, "What will change things?" There are some who would argue that it's, that it's equality, that it's、um, you know we just need better economic equality, and that will save us. There are some who argue that it's education. We just need to educate people better, help people to become better citizens, and that will save our society. And there are some who maybe just have a general sense that things need to change. When we look at things like the,、uh, the vote to elect Donald Trump, perhaps even Brexit, there's an argument that those those、um, political movements really were driven by just a kind of sense that things need to radically change, that the, that the system is broken, and we need to press. The reset button. So there's this subconscious, and actually I would argue conscious、uh, desperation, really a desire for change in our society, and a search for the answer that will save us. Actually, what Simeon is saying here speaks right into that desperation and that anxiety that our culture is experiencing. Simeon is giving us an answer to the angst and the desperation that we feel. He's saying Jesus is the salvation; that He is the Savior of the world that we've been looking for. But for many of us, He's not the salvation that we recognise. For many Londoners, they might say, "Yes, I, I can believe that that Jesus、um, was born in in the way that the the, the、uh, gospel narratives describe." But actually, I wouldn't agree that He is the Savior of the world. So he's not the the saviour that most Londoners are expecting, but I'd also say he's not the saviour that the Jewish people were expecting. For many of the Jews at the time, they were expecting and hoping for a Messiah who would bring political and military liberation, 
They were in a, a period of oppression. The Romans occupied uh, where this dedication is taking place, Jerusalem, and that surrounding area. The Romans were occupying, and they were, they were kind of um, restricting the freedoms of the Jewish people under their occupation. And kind of hanging over them was that threat that actually at some point the Romans might even stop them from being able to worship in the way that their Old Testament and their, and they, and their kind of temple system that they'd established. So there were some who would read these Old Testament prophecies and you just get a kind of a glimpse of them in this passage when it describes uh, the consolation of Israel. We're talking about the Messiah there in verse 25. And um, in verse 38, when, it, when uh, Anna describes the redemption of Jerusalem, there'd be some who would have read those, those kind of um, prophecies or predictions about this one who would come and save Israel and would have said, really, this is going to be a military freeing. When they talk about the redemption of Jerusalem, they're saying it's going to be a kind of... Uh, freedom from slavery. Redemption is kind of the idea of being freed from slavery. You, you might say, in fact, there was a time when charities would go around and redeem slaves. They would go and basically pay their slave owners for the slaves under their occupation. They would pay for them and they would give them freedom. So when it says the redemption of Jerusalem, there'll be some who would have read that and said, basically, he's going to bring us freedom from the Romans and he's going to give us military power. But actually, we know that Jesus brings a very different type of redemption. He doesn't bring the kingdom in the way that these people were expecting. And actually, what we have really here is, in this passage is the beginning of a kind of reorientation of the expectations of the Jewish people. Kind of saying, actually, the salvation's not what you were expecting, but it's actually the best thing for you. And that's what I want to do to you, for you this morning, is present to you and show you how this salvation that Simeon's describing is not the salvation that you're expecting, but is the salvation that you need. What I'm really saying is that God knows better than you do what you need. Actually, God sends the salvation that you need in the person of Jesus. I want to show you that in three ways. One, I want to show you that you're looking for ideas, but actually salvation is a person. I want to say, secondly, you're expecting salvation to come in strength. Actually, salvation comes in weakness. And thirdly, you're expecting salvation, which is external. Actually, salvation is internal. So first of all then, salvation is a person, not an idea. We live in an intellectual age where many of us seek hope and salvation from ideas. You just have to look at the explosion of popularity of blogs and podcasts and I suppose Lifestyle magazines have been around for a while. But you see all these sorts of ways that really we're we're pouring over this this media uh, to give us life hacks to give us ways of improving our lives, or simply new ways of understanding the world. You can see some of the most prominent cultural influencers are those people who uh, make a living out of giving us ideas for understanding our lives. People like uh, Seth Godin, Malcolm Gladwell, uh, Naomi Klein, Simon Sinek. If you don't recognize these names, then I just encourage you to get on the internet, look at a few TED Talks, go and educate yourself. But really, there's a whole raft of cultural influences, people who've made their livelihood by giving us ideas of how to live our lives. I'm not saying actually that education or learning or new ideas aren't incredibly useful, but this is the culture that we're living in. This is the soup that we're swimming in. Actually, behind this idea, it's really the, behind this kind of ceaseless quest for information on ideas, is the assumption that if I understand the world better, if I can just find the right ideas, then I can change my life and I can live my best life. Actually, I think this bleeds over into our attitude about religion. 
Much of the Western approach to spirituality is a kind of borrowing of different ideas from different religions. Think of mindfulness, something which is dominating our culture, is done in schools, in hospitals, in, in all sorts of different places, the Headspace app, if you're familiar with that. Basically, that's Eastern meditation from uh, Buddhism and, and, and other schools of thought uh, repackaged for a secular Western audience. Think about the, the clean eating movement, uh, you know, the kind of people who produce books like Eat Yourself Clean and Seven Day Juice Fast. And actually, really, that whole movement um, really started to suggest that you could purify your, your soul as well as your body, started to imply that you almost become a more morally good person according to what you eat. What is that except a repackaging of the old religious dietary laws of, of kind of Islam and Judaism for a modern secular audience? When it comes to Christianity, I think this probably most obviously manifests itself in the way that some will say, well, I'm not convinced that Jesus was God, but I like his teaching. Actually, much of our contemporary Western ethics is still informed in some way from some of those kind of principles. And people say, well, I love that Jesus, you know, I love him as a moral teacher. Things like loving your neighbor as yourself or forgiving those who wrong you. So we end up building a kind of smorgasbord of different ideas, some spiritual, some secular, where we say, this is my truth. This is what will save me. But Simeon here in this passage is making a very different claim about salvation. Actually, he's making a much bigger claim. His claim is that salvation is not located in ideas, but in a person. Verse 30, when he holds up that baby, when he holds up Jesus, he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. Saying this, this person is the saviour of the world. He's not presenting us to him uh, him to us, sorry, as a good teacher or one who has good ideas to help us to live better lives, but actually as the answer to that brokenness, the answer, the concrete solution to the problems that we face in humanity. And actually, this is much more tangible than an idea. You know, ideas come and go. We say, oh, maybe that idea is good. If it works for you, adopt it. It's, you know, but it's actually a bit kind of loose. And obviously, people adapt ideas and they change them. But actually, salvation is much more concrete than idea, much more, much more real than actually than just an idea. Salvation is a person. Jesus has put a face on salvation. In verse 30, when he describes him as your salvation, he's saying he's God's salvation. He's echoing, almost quoting some of the prophecies, some of the words that God has spoken through his prophets hundreds of years before Jesus that are describing Jesus um, and his mission on earth. And one passage that it's almost very similar to what Simeon's saying here, and Simeon may indeed be referencing him, is in Isaiah 52. I'll just read it to you. It says, The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And this prophecy from Isaiah that Simeon's referencing, um, he's saying he's not just the salvation of God, but he's the Lord's holy arm. Now, if you see my arm, if I bear my arm to you, Apart from perhaps the conviction, thank you. Um, apart from the conviction that perhaps I need to start going to the gym or something like that, if I say, "Who is this?" I say, "Well, it's you." When he describes him as the Lord's holy arm, he's describing him as the Lord. Isaiah is saying that this salvation, the one who brings salvation, isn't just the one who brings salvation; is actually God in the flesh. Actually, he's saying 
that he's revealing God in the flesh. He's revealing God to us. But not just revealing God to us, revealing also God's salvation plan, God's plan to save humanity. What we can really start to get from this is that Jesus' central purpose, the reason for his incarnation, the very reason that he's born as a baby, is that people might see God and might see his plan to save humanity. But he's not just the one who points to salvation or the one who tells us how to be saved. He's the central character in that story. The story of humanity's rescue is Jesus' story, his story of his life, his death, and his resurrection. He's not just telling us the story, he is the story. Really what this means is that Christianity hangs and falls on the person of Jesus. Christianity isn't just a set of philosophical propositions about the world. It isn't just a set of ethical teaching that you can take and kind of divorce from the story. Actually, the Christian story really in its essence is the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. So if you're looking in, if you're not a Christian here, and you say, well, I want to understand what Christianity is, really I would just encourage you to look at the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. Really, you have to ask the question, is this true? And if this is true, then what's your response? As you hear the claim that Jesus is God's salvation, that he's come to rescue you, you need to hear the question alongside that, will you allow yourself to be rescued by him? Will you allow yourself to be rescued by him? As you hear the claim that Jesus is saviour of humanity, I suppose one of the first questions that will, that will pop into your mind, that will arise, is what kind of saviour is he? And he's a very different kind of saviour to the one you're expecting in the way that he saves us. Which brings me on to my second point. Salvation comes in weakness, not strength. See, throughout history, our understanding of what it means to be a hero or someone who rescues others, in general, has tended to focus on strength, not weakness. The language of leadership is so often focused on strength. You can hear it in the rhetoric about politicians, uh, that, they, that the public demand a strong leader. People might say, well, you, know, you can say what you like about Donald Trump, but at least he's a strong leader. At least he's someone who's strong, who can defend America's interests and, of course, make America great again. Um, but actually, even close to home, Theresa May, she was, um, I think it was around the time of her leadership election, and uh, there were two veteran conservative politicians on Sky News, and they were talking about her, but they didn't realise the cameras were on them and they were being recorded. And, they were, and, and one of them, uh, they, they swore, so, but they effectively said, she's a very difficult woman. And actually, straight after that, she wore it as a badge of honour. She took that moniker that they'd given her and said, yes, I am a very difficult woman, and actually that means I'm able to defend British interests. I'm able to achieve the Brexit that we want. I'm not saying necessarily that that's the right language or even that we should seek to uh, elect politicians who um, aspire after this strength. What I'm saying is, can you just see how important strength is to the appeal that political leaders make to us? You can hear it in the language of business leaders. We look for people who can take power, who can assert their authority, who can knock heads together. You know, if, you, if you're looking at someone, you say, well, she's someone who gets things done. All of that really is talking about is often really talking about strength, like the ability to push your agenda and achieve what you want. So if we think our saviour is a person, if we're convinced by Simeon that the saviour is a person and not an idea, then we would expect them to come in strength. 
But the picture that we have here, this dedication, is the exact opposite. It's very easy to forget that when Simeon is describing Jesus as the saviour of the world, he's talking about a baby. Now, the baby, a baby, as we witnessed just moments ago, really is kind of the exact opposite of strength. A baby is actually an incredible picture of weakness and vulnerability. As the parents who've been dedicating their children will tell us all too easily, their baby is utterly dependent on them, dependent on them for everything. They need them for eating, for clothing, for going to the toilet. They can't even sit up without their parents' help. It's almost, I'm not saying it's true, but it's almost something that doesn't quite make sense about um, Simeon speaking to this baby and saying, you are the saviour of the world, when this baby can't even wipe its own bottom. Actually, it's even more incredible than that, because when we saw in Isaiah is that this isn't just a potential human hero, this is actually God in the flesh. This is God who made the whole universe, who is rightly king in authority over the whole universe, who's humbled himself to become a baby. Despite being God, he has made himself dependent on humanity. Now, there are some who would hear this from a Muslim or Jewish uh, faith who would say, actually, this is blasphemy. They would be so offended by the idea that God would come in the form of a human flesh, that God would humble himself in this way, that they would say, it is blasphemy. Actually, this is a uniquely Christian idea. And we get a little bit more detail in Philippians chapter 2, in verse 5. It says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So saying, despite being God, uh, despite being God the Son, he takes the form of men, takes human form. This is the incarnation. This is what we're celebrating at Christmas. And being formed in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This journey, this, this journey, this trajectory from king of the universe, humbling himself to become a baby, continues. That journey of humbling himself continues to the point where he humbles himself by dying on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We can see that this weakness is actually a temporary weakness, that one day, actually, the whole universe, the whole world will recognize that Jesus is Lord. So actually, it's a temporary weakness that he's humbled himself. He's taken on this weakness for our sake. So we can see the central narrative of salvation is Jesus being willing to give up the privileges of being king over all the earth to be a simple Jewish baby bound for the cross. So salvation comes in weakness, not strength. Jesus is not like a Trump-style politician who claims to have all this power to be able to solve all our problems, but actually can't, and is just saying that because he wants to, get your, uh, wants to get power. Actually, he's the exact opposite of that. He's someone who has all the power and le- voluntarily relinquishes that power, relinquishes um, that, takes on this weakness for our sake, so as to save humanity. 
Jesus is a very different kind of person. He's a very different kind of saviour, very different to any other kind of person who present themselves as our saviour. Really what this says is Jesus can be trusted. He's a saviour like no other. We're so aware of leaders, of revolutionaries who've claimed to be rescuing their people from oppression, who've claimed to kind of be on a mission of liberation. But when the dust settles, actually they've taken power and they end up being just like the people who've been oppressing their people all along. Think about a, a, a guy like Robert Mugabe. He started out as a freedom fighter started out bringing revolution and self-rule for his people. But soon after taking power, he turned on his own people. And he um, suppressed the opposition with troops, known for corruption, abusing his people in all sorts of ways. What might have started as a noble fight for freedom, or appeared like it was a noble fight for freedom, suddenly became a man clinging on to power against the will of all his people. Think about the Soviet Revolution in 1919. Lenin takes control, and they're trying to take control from a powerful elite. But what do they do? They concentrate power in a new elite. But Christ is so different to that. He's the rescuer who can be trusted. These others might have appeared to have good motivations, but they actually weren't in it for the people. They were in it for themselves. But Christ's self-sacrificial mission... His voluntary weakness is really a demonstration that Christ has very different motivations. That the salvation mission that we are experiencing, that we're remembering at Christmas, is actually all about, all about love. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that, all, so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Jesus' salvation is launched from a place of love. Christ's rescue stands alone as the pure and righteous, humble rescue, because he alone, his alone is the true rescue of love. Actually, this willingness to humble himself, this this, um, sacrificial love, you can see it all the way through the Gospels. It permeates through Christ's character. Think about the way he washes the disciples' feet. He serves the people who follow him. And actually, of course, his willingness to humbly die on the cross out of love for humanity. So salvation comes in weakness because of Christ's love. And that's salvation that you can trust. What are the implications of this for us? Well, for those of you who are Christians, I think Jesus' humble salvation is really a picture and a model for us of how we are to engage with the world. The kingdom that Christ inaugurates with his salvation has humility as, as such a central value. Just before the passage we heard in Philippians, it it gives an instruction to Christians. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This instruction, this kingdom value that should permeate Christian community, that should permeate our lives, comes directly from the model of Jesus. Actually, we know that rivalry and conceit are so often the primary motivations in the world that we live in. So often in the workplace, we see it's competition with others. It's that, uh, that conceit really is pride, that kind of desire to prove yourself, to show yourself more powerful or better than the people around you that so often drives so much of the working world that we participate in. But actually, Jesus is giving us a totally different model of interaction, a totally different way of building a community and of interacting with the world, one of humble service one of willing be, of being to lay down your sense of self 
not trying to, to prove yourself to others, but instead trying to serve one another. And actually, as well as being part, but, but such an essential part of Christ's kingdom, of Christ's church, actually humility is also the way into the kingdom. You need humility in order to experience salvation in the first place. You need to recognize your own need for a savior. Otherwise, of course, you won't respond to Christ's invitation in the first place. Which brings me to the third point. That salvation is internal, not external. Salvation is about internal redemption, not external circumstances. If salvation means being saved, then surely the most obvious question is what are we being saved from? Most of the time when we think of being saved, we think of being rescued from different external situations. We think of being rescued from fire or disaster. You know, that people were, hear stories all around the world of people being rescued from natural disasters. We hear people being rescued from authoritarian regimes. Or we hear pe- of people being saved, you know, people being rescued from difficult family circumstances, of, of kind of being, you know, when, when there's neglect or abuse going on, we talk about we've, we've saved those children from that situation. Actually, this rescue from external circumstances is exactly what the Jews had in mind. Remember verse 38, when Anna describes the redemption of Jerusalem. Their expectation is that the Messiah will be one who brings them freedom from this external oppression that they were experiencing. Got this great uh, prayer from um, the Jewish community in uh, the first or second century. Um, which describes that. It's not from the Bible, it's from um, Maccabees. Gather together our scattered people. Set free those who are slaves among the Gentiles. So he's talking about their slavery to the Gentiles, to the Romans. Look on those who are rejected and despised and let the the Gentiles know that you are our God. Punish those who oppress and are insolent with pride. Plant your people in your holy place as Moses promised. So they're expecting a physical saviour, one who would give them military victory against the Gentiles, against the Roman oppressors. But did you hear? Set free those who are slaves. What they're really hoping is that God would redeem them out of slavery to the Roman people, just as he redeemed the Jewish people out of slavery in Egypt. So they're expecting slavery to be finished, slavery to be um, ended. That's what it means when they say the redemption of Jerusalem. But Christ brings a different type of redemption. Christ brings an end to a different type of slavery. The redemption that Christ brings is not slavery to the Romans, but slavery to sin. Actually, what it suggests is the biggest problem that the Jewish people and us face is not one of external circumstances, not oppression from different things going on in society. Actually, the problem is in here. The problem is internal, not external. Actually, what it says is the most acute and pressing problem of humanity is not our external, an external one, but an internal one. When we consider the broken world, all those different circumstances that give our general populace a sense of despair. Actually, what we realise is the problem for all of that is in us. Uh, the Times newspaper reportedly sent out an inquiry to a set of famous authors in the 19th century. And they said, what's wrong with the world? And one Christian author, G.K. Chesterton, reportedly wrote back, Dear Sir, I am 
Yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. Many of us would like to locate the problem of humanity to a specific group of people, or even a, a set of policies. They say, well, the problem with the world is the right wing. You know, you, so you've got the, a, a wonderful, I won't quote it perfectly, but Tim Keller, this wonderful quote where he said, the left wing, look at the right wing, and they say, they're the problem with the world. And the right wing, look at the left wing, and they say, they're the problem with the world. But Christians look at the whole situation and say, I am the problem with the world. Actually, the problems we observe come from the brokenness of the human heart, what the Bible calls sin. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a, um, a man who had suffered in a Russian gulag, like a, a, a kind of uh, concentration camp. And, um, he, and he, so you can see he's a man who's really experienced tremendous evil, clearly acquainted with the human capacity for evil. And he described it like this, in answer to this question of, is there just a community of people who are in the wrong? He says, if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the love dividing good and evil, sorry, the the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? This is what the Bible calls sin. This, uh, and actually it's manifest in all sorts of different ways. Pride, selfishness, greed. Really even just the desire to build your life about anything else apart from God. It's not just the things you do. Actually it's a fundamental orientation of your heart. Away from God and towards evil. Really this is actually like a soul sickness. A cancer of the heart. The Bible goes further actually to suggest it's endemic within your nature. You can't avoid it. Actually, without salvation, you're a slave to sin. When we understand that this slavery to sin is our biggest problem, when we understand that that is what causes the brokenness of the world that we all observe, and when we understand that that causes a broken relationship between us and God, then you recognize that this is the most, this is our clear and present danger. This is the most acute problem facing us. And this is the problem that needs a solution. This is why we need salvation. So how does Christ's um, salvation rescue us from this sin? Well, I think actually you get a hint to this in verse 35. Remember when Simeon tells Mary, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. It's a bit cryptic. We wonder what's he talking about there? Well, what could pierce through a mother's soul more than the death of her son? Actually, what Simeon is referring to, what commentators have tended to suggest that Simeon's referring to there, is he's talking about Jesus' eventual death on the cross. He's predicting Christ's death. It's really interesting that even at Jesus' dedication, his death and resurrection looms large on the horizon. Actually, it just gives you a sense, a reminder that Jesus' central purpose is salvation. That he's, from the right from birth, he's headed to the cross. But why does the cross do that? Why is his death and resurrection so essential to his salvation plan? Well, really, as Christ dies and is resurrected, he invites you to participate in that same death and resurrection. By believing and trusting in him, Christ is inviting us to participate in his salvation story. And as we experience death, not death on the cross like Christ, but death to our old life 
as we turn away to our old life of um, our fundamental orientation away from God and our fundamental orientation towards sin. Actually, we die to that and we experience a resurrection with Christ. We rise to a new life, a new life with God for eternity. We experience that resurrection with Christ. So as you surrender your life to Christ, you experience a death to sin, a death to your old life, and and a life controlled by sin, and enter into a new life, eternal life with God, where he puts his spirit in you. Really, so if you're you're already a believer, if you're someone who said, actually, I've participated in that salvation, then I would just say this, that this whole salvation points to the fact that you're now living a new life, that you've died to your old life and you experience new life, your freedom from sin. Uh, Romans 6 puts it like this. Um, Not only that, sorry. Do Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus? were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might walk, we too might walk in newness of life. If you're a Christian here, the encouragement is to walk in newness of life, to walk in the freedom from sin that Christ has brought you and to experience that. We tend to underestimate the freedom from sin that Christ has brought us. But if you're not a Christian here, if you're someone who hasn't experienced this salvation, then you need to hear that what Simeon's saying here is this salvation is the best thing for you. There's an invitation implicit in Christ's salvation for you to participate in his salvation. Really what that means is recognizing that he is indeed the saviour of the world, accepting that no amount of ideas can compete with the living saviour of the world. Recognizing that Christ alone can be trusted because he comes in humble weakness out of love. That he's a rescuer. That his salvation is like no other. And it involves surrendering your life to him. Entering into the story. Saying, I want to die to my old life. I want to put to death that person who didn't follow Jesus. And I want to rise again. I want to experience new life with you, Christ, for eternity. When you do that, you'll experience the resurrection, the transformed life. This is the salvation hope for the world. As people respond to his calling, as they find their place in his salvation story, their lives are transformed. And as their lives are transformed, they start to live lives filled with the Holy Spirit. They start to live in this newness of life. And as they live in that new life, they start to live a life of love a life of humble sacrifice. They start to live a different way, the way that Jesus is demonstrating in the way that he's brought us salvation. This is the hope of salvation for London. This is the hope for the end of brokenness in this city, is that people will experience this salvation and their lives will be transformed. And really, it's an invitation for you. Um, I'd like to pray now. I'd like to invite you, if this is... um, If this is a salvation that you hear and you think, yes, actually, I want to participate in that salvation. I want to experience salvation. I want to surrender my life to Jesus. Then I would like to pray for you now. I'm just going to pray to respond to this. If you feel like you've already responded to the salvation call, if you feel like, yeah, this is true and this is the most wonderful news, I just encourage you to experience again the joy, 
the knowledge that you've been saved, knowledge that a humble saviour has come for you, and then we'll turn in worship. Lord Jesus, we just thank you that your salvation is better than any other salvation that the world offers. Thank you that it doesn't come in ideas, doesn't come in uh, kind of intangible things. Actually, your salvation has come tangibly to us in your life, in your death and in your resurrection. Lord Jesus, we want to surrender our lives to you again. We want to recognize that you are our humble saviour, that you are our rescuer. We want to ask that you would rescue us again. I ask you that we would participate in your death and resurrection. That we would find new life in you. New life that you speak about. New life that you offer us. And that we would respond to that. That we would experience this new life again this morning. Lord Jesus, as we, as we come to worship you, would we remember, would we enjoy this salvation? Remember this wonderful good news that we've been saved into your kingdom that we've been rescued from sin, and we'll be put to death the sinful nature again. Amen.